several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter, and we get today to talk about a subject that I think probably about six or seven years ago, it seemed like it was all I talked about on Grape Encounters because I was absolutely so irate about what was going on in the wine industry. Let me just start by saying, as I think most of you know, I'm a diehard romantic when it comes to wine. There's nothing I think more pleasurable than serving wine the right way. First of all, serving it out of a bottle, but more importantly, serving it out of a bottle that has a cork enclosure. Just nothing beats that. It's so exciting to, you know, go through all the motions and open it up and hear that little pop and lay the cork alongside the bottle on the table. Well, we have somebody on today who knows an awful lot about cork. I gave up the fight mostly, I should say, along the way for reasons that we'll discuss later on in the show. But still, if I have my druthers, it's always going to be to buy a bottle of wine that's got a cork in it. I have a feeling my guest feels the same way. He's the executive director of the Cork Quality Council. It's Peter Weber coming to us from Sonoma County, right, Peter? That's right, Dave. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Hey, nice to have you on. And I guess the best place to start is what is the Cork Quality Council and what is the role that you play and how do you interact with wineries? And let's start there. Okay. Well, the Cork Quality Council is basically a group of American cork companies, and we got together close to 20 years ago and said, you know, we're having some problems with perceived issues with cork. So we put together a group to have some standardized quality control experiments and procedures. We spent a couple years on research and uh, ended up buying some fancy gas chromatography equipment and hiring the number one laboratory here in wine country to manage that for us. And we think we've really done a lot to improve the quality of the cork that we provide to our people. What I do is I manage that. I try to do some education with people who are interested in cork. We go through, for instance, every year 30,000 different samples that are, are tested for a TCA before the wines are accepted into the warehouses, and I get those results directly, and we continually tighten up our standards and have been enjoying results that make us think that most of the issues that we were concerned with 10 years ago are pretty much gone. Okay, so let's talk about those issues for a second, because it would seem to me, anyway, that the general concern consumer probably thinks the reason there's a move from cork to screw cap or what we call the Stelvin enclosure largely 
out of a desire for convenience and maybe not so much because of any issues having to do with TCA or other little buggers that they're not familiar with. What's your perception where that's concerned? Well, I think that in many ways that's quite true. Frankly, when this started, it was primarily in California anyway. The wines were, screw caps were coming from Australia or New Zealand. And I think some of the people there were citing quality concerns with the cork that they were buying there. People in the cork industry tell me that for various reasons, perhaps the cork that was making it all the way to Australia was not as good as what we had in California. But in either way, we have worked very hard to eliminate those problems. So at this point, I think if you this consumer research, you would find that most people probably look for convenience as the number one benefit of a screw cap. Yeah, and you know, and it seemed like the population was pretty divided at the time. I'm trying to think about, you know, just when we saw that surge toward screw caps and you mentioned Australia and New Zealand. They certainly have absolutely no aversion to screw caps and I'm going to guess that the lion's share of their wines are under Stelvin enclosures right now. Is that reasonably correct? That's true. I mean, there are some small winemakers who have returned to cork. It's interesting to note that it's common practice in Australia, evidently, to finish your wines that are being shipped to China in cork because the Chinese consumers prefer that and see that as a uh, Isn't that uh, preferential package. Wow, very interesting. So then you're basically saying that the use of the screw cap seemed to have peaked out at some point, and now we're seeing a reverse in the trend and these folks looking to the cork as being an option to go back to. Yes, I think there's some movement that way. I know in the United States, I started looking at Nielsen sales figures in 2010, and I think that was probably the lowest point for market share for cork. And I don't really keep track of screw cap versus synthetic. I kind of have them lumped together as cork or not cork. But I think it was February 2010, cork was below 50%. It was 48% of uh, case sales. And within a year or two, it had bounced back up to 60%. Well, I was going to say, it seemed like almost an insurmountable thing for the winemaker who were going to screw cap to do, and that is to convince the consumer population that the screw cap wines retained the same value and they just weren't cheaper wines because there was a good long time there where screw cap meant inexpensive, right? Yes, that was a particular problem, I think, in the U.S. market for the screw cap that people to overcome. And in 1965, if you saw one of the screw cap, it probably was, I don't want to mention the brands, but it was one of those brands that cost about $2. Oh, and, come uh, on, Thunderbird, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On, we know what they were. <laughs> it's okay. You know, that's a pretty good value at $2. You know? <laughs> but anyway, we saw a very small number of the really fine winemakers in California and other parts of the U.S., other parts of the world, we should say, that started to get daring and started to use the screw caps, and especially places like Oregon, where they were completely willing to put the screw caps on their wines and keep the prices up and you know, defy the common thinking, but it worked out okay for them. But now we need to move forward because there's, you know, been a lot of changes. And I know your organization and others have really worked hard to, you know, put the shine back on conventional cork, if you can actually shine up cork. <laughs> but before we go to a break, let's get into TCA because on the winemaker end and on the part of the you know, the more informed consumer, the person who really is into the deep nitty gritty of wine, which so many people really don't want to be into, this issue of TCA was everything. And most people, I think, have heard the term corked wine, 
but I also think that very few people know how to recognize it. So can you give me just like a two-minute education on TCA and what it means, and then we'll also get into, in a few minutes, how to recognize it? Okay. Well, TCA is pretty common, not just with quarks, but I smell TCA at the supermarket and the raisins and the carrots and apples. It's basically a very common byproduct of microorganisms when they run into a uh, chlorine or any other halogen, like bromine. You can have bromoanisole as well. What you smell is basically the smell of old newspapers, and that's because old newspapers have TCA. It's not analogy. It's actually the smell of TCA. Oh, is that right? See, I know that it smells like old, wet newspapers, right? But right. I had no idea that that actually was TCA in the newspapers. How interesting. Yes, like I say, it's very common. In fact, for a while, there were some problems with some wineries themselves having TCA in their barrels or in their barrel racks. It's fairly easy to do. I think the wineries are very good now about not cleaning with chlorinated products, which kind of will reduce that chance of having that. One of the problems why I think cork is associated with TCA, though, is that you know it's a wood product, so it can, can develop TCA just like any other wood product. But the, you know, the chemical solvent, preferred solvent for, for TCA is a 20% ethanol mix, which is basically describing a uh, bottle of wine and seeing that we, you know, we hold it up and, uh, under our nose and take a really good smell or really have the absolute best possible conditions for uh, smelling any TCA that might exist. All right, we're going to take a break here, Peter, for a second, but I want to get deeper into TCA because it just seems to me like for those people who are listening that have a pool in the backyard and put chlorine, chlorine knocks out anything bad. So it's hard to imagine that it would be associated with something that would be as uh, unpleasant as the TCA that we find in wine. So I want to jump into that. Peter Weber is the executive director of the Cork Quality Council. They're based out of Northern California and... Anyway, they do a lot of testing up there and are doing a lot to assure the quality of corks that are going into the bottles of wine that we love so dearly. And we'll be back with Peter in just a moment. So stay with us. We'll return with Grape Encounters right after this. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in the quaint, friendly, and historic town of Atascadero, California. Don't forget to join our Grape Encounters Radio Facebook group page, where incredibly fun people just like you share ideas and frequently get together to share a bottle as well. We like to talk about wine. Did you know that you can visit us in person right in the heart of the Central Coast wine country of California? We can get you a special rate at one of our loveliest hotels, introduce you to some epic wines in person, help you chart out amazing self-guided winery tours, and tell you stories that we're not allowed to share on the radio. Okay, that last one was a, a stretch. Here's David. 
Hey, back with Grape Encounters Radio. Got to ask you guys a question. How many of you have some kind of very special container at home to keep your corks in? What is it about corks that we love so much? We save almost nothing in this throwaway society, but when it comes to corks, we have like cork cages and cork containers and all kinds of different vessels to hold our corks in because you just can't stand to throw them away. They are sacred to you. And perhaps that is why it is so hard for us to let loose of the cork and embrace the screw cap, which is on so many wines, but it looks like cork is starting to find its way back. And part of that is because there are a bunch of people out there that are doing everything in their power to make sure that the cork is as good as it can be in terms of offering quality assurance of the wine that is inside the bottle. And I must tell you that after talking to so many winemakers over the years, there is some frustration out there after they've worked so hard to make wine and have some of that wine be affected by TCA. But We were talking to our guest a moment ago, the executive director of the Cork Quality Council, Peter Weber. And Peter, we were talking about what TCA is and how it affects the wine. Do you think, Peter, that most consumers know what they're smelling and know what they're tasting when they encounter TCA? Well, I'm not sure they do, actually. I read a lot of blogs where people describe TCA as having that wet dog aroma or some other description that is usually reserved for a different flaw. In the case of wet dog, that's usually associated with Britannomyces, which is a yeast slash bacteria that gets in the barrels and sort of has a wet dog aroma in the wine. Some people consider it to be a major flaw. Some people consider it to be bringing earthiness to the wine. Yeah, there are a lot of people who actually are proud to have that quality in their wine. So that one, can go either way. TCA, not so much. I've never heard anybody say that when they discover their wine is corked that they're happy about it. <laughs> it's not not a good thing. You know, ironically, I once did a study with some uh, did a tasting, and we took some wine that had never seen any oak, and the winery donated some wine to me, and it was delicious wine. It was so lively and so full of fruit. It was very special. I'm afraid it was too special because what the point of the research was, we put different amounts of TCA into different glasses of this wine. We wanted to see at what point did consumers say, I don't like this as much as the one without any TCA. And I've seen the same kind of test run in Australia, and it it kind of gave us a number to expect. But I think because this wine was so lively and so fresh, I was rather surprised that the wine that had a low level of TCA actually outperformed the uh, control. But I never really published a study because I didn't think anyone in the wine business would want to hear me say that consumers preferred TCA, but it's one <laughs> no, experiment I, they, they I, actually Yeah, did. I think not. You know, <laughs> I'm on the uh, wine judging circuit and, uh, you know, judge a number of competitions throughout the year. When you're at a competition, of course, you're tasting literally hundreds of wines at a time. So the opportunity to encounter TCA is vastly higher in that environment than if you're a consumer. If you're a consumer, you may only encounter it once in a blue moon. But if you're going through tons of wines, it's going to be a completely different story. It's fun to literally be at a table with four or five really expert wine people, whether they come out of journalism or winemaking or the restaurant industry or whatever, and then have somebody immediately say, Uh uh-oh, TCA. And the next step at a competition is they're going to go in the back and they're going to grab a fresh bottle of the same wine and we're going to re-pour. And I would say 90% of the time at least, the re-pour is not going to have the TCA. And that's when you really, really understand just how horrifying this affliction is. Because boy, when they're side by side, you know, there's no doubt you can really get it at that point in time. 
Well, you've got a very good nose. A couple of times we've gone to different competitions and we've offered to test any wines that were rejected. And I guess in three different chance times, it was always pretty much the same result, where basically 30% of the wines rejected actually had TCA. And that doesn't mean they weren't rejected for some other reason. But I think that sometimes some people, I think, will consider a wine corked if it doesn't smell like they expect or it doesn't taste like they expect to some extent. And obviously with a professional taster such as yourself, I know you guys know the difference, but as I say, when I read some of the wine blogs, and your original question is, do people know exactly what they're tasting? I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but are you saying then that of the many potential flaws that you might encounter in a wine, that they all tend to be lumped into the TCA classification? In other words, if it's a flaw, it's probably TCA when it really could be a lot of other things? I think to some extent that's the truth. I mean, if you walk into a wine laboratory in Sonoma or Napa, you will see that uh, they're probably doing 50 times more tests on Britannomyces than they are on TCA. And a lot of these microorganisms can exhibit bottle-to-bottle variation as well. And I'm not trying to say TCA doesn't exist, and that's what we do with the Core Quality Council is try to reduce it. I'm just saying that I think sometimes people in the industry feel that if there's bottle-to-bottle variation, it must be because of the cork. And I guess it's been my observation that every bottle is basically its own population. If it's got some microorganisms in them, they can develop in one way or not develop. Might be these microorganisms are not dissipated in the barrel. There can be little hot spots, they can be near the surface, they can be near the bottom, and things are not always uniformly distributed from one bottle to bottle. That's my concern, and I think professional tasters such as yourself get it right, but sometimes, as I say, when I read the blogs, they're describing something to me that sounds like much more like it's a microbiological problem than it is TCA. Okay, so we know that TCA has been a problem, and it grew into a fairly big problem for a while. I assume that's why organizations like yours really have sprouted up to try to put an end to that and understand what's going on. How much change has occurred in recent years because of the work of organizations like yours? Any ideas? Well, I mean, I can tell you if I compare the levels of TCA I found in our uh, wines in 2002 to what they are now, we show the amount of TCA has been reduced by over 90%. And and what's even more important is that the methods that we used have now been adopted all over the world and in Portugal. Before that, there was really no chemical test for TCA. If you were a cork salesman and your winery said, hey, these corks have TCA, you could say, I agree with you. Or you could say, I don't smell that. And it made it very hard to improve things because along the chain, you could probably find somebody at the production side who said, I don't smell that at all. And, you know, it's one thing to look for a bad cork. It's another thing to find good cork and be able to document how good it is. And so really by coming up with a chemical measurement for TCA, we were able to really reinforce what was working, what wasn't. I mean, I must say we had almost half of our improvement in the first year. What we found was that there were one or two suppliers of corks in Portugal that were always full of TCA, but it was sort of at a low number that was hard to detect mm. doing sensory. And when we could see the real numbers, we saw that there were a couple of suppliers who were selling to more than one of our members, and their corks were always high in TCA, and it was just below the sensory level. Oh, I'm sorry, Peter. We're going to have to take a break here for just a second, but I want to tell a story of something that just happened in the last week or so uh, having to do with TCA and a wine sample that was sent to me that is TCA on steroids, and I think it'll make the point really, really well. We're talking to Peter Weber. He's the executive 
Executive Director of the Cork Quality Council, a nonprofit organization comprised of leading U.S. cork suppliers. Council was formed uh, back in 1993 to develop standards for quality assurance practices and to provide an educational resource for natural cork, which yours truly loves. I love my corks, man. I have enough corks to build a house out of course what does that say about my wine drinking habits we'll be back with more grape encounters right after this This segment of Grape Encounters is brought to you by my number one wine discovery of 2016 the awesome gold medal winning wines of the Cardello Winery From the very first sip, you'll understand why these astounding, nicely priced Cardello wines are swiftly becoming a cult classic, just as I predicted. Handcrafted and stunning, you can get yours at CardelloWinery.com. That's CardelloWinery.com. Or find more information at GrapeEncounters.com. about what he spends on wine, but liberal on how much he pours his friends. Here's your host, David Wilson. Hey, we have on the line today the executive director of the Cork Quality Council. It's Peter Weber. He's been in the wine industry for longer than a lot of you have been on this planet. But you're not that old, Peter, but you've been doing it a while, huh? Yes, indeed. I started uh, pretty much right out of college. You worked at Windsor Vineyards. I always liked that company. They still exist, right? Windsor yes, Vineyards. They, do. Yeah. they uh, did private labeling. I guess they still do for companies, corporations, organizations that wanted to have their own wine label but didn't want to actually go out and plant grapes and crush them. And they do a really good job, actually. I used them a couple of times. It was a lot of fun, but I digress. When I tell you a story about something that happened a couple of weeks ago, I had gotten a letter from an organization from the Middle East that makes wine. And I was frankly really excited to try this wine and had heard good things about it. I'm not going to name any names because it wasn't a pleasant outcome, at least initially. But the wine arrived and man, I couldn't wait to open it up. I get a lot of samples of wine, but this one was of particular interest to me. Poured it. Oh my gosh. The minute I started pouring it into the glass, I thought I was going to get sick. The smell was so offensive, really offensive. And I knew it wasn't the wine. I knew it was something else. And it didn't take me more than just a matter of seconds to know it was TCA. But let's just say TCA on steroids because it was just that bad. And I felt so bad because I really wanted to be able to say good things about this wine. And one of the things I did, Peter, I went ahead and I drank a glass of the wine, tainted as it was, because I thought, you know what? I can imagine what the wine is supposed to taste like, and I'll try to, you know, work my way around the TCA. And by the time an hour or so had passed, I was sick to my stomach. I literally was. And all I could taste in my mouth was that offensive flavor. And I contacted the company that sent it. And I was really apologetic because I feel for people when that happens to them because they don't do it on purpose. But a lot of it, I think, does come from the difference in practices in the wineries, depending upon what part of the world you're in. California, we tend to be clean freaks, right? 
Yeah, people take good care of their corks generally. I have managed small wineries in other parts of the world and one place and people used to store all the corks in burlap bags in a little room upstairs above the bottling line and if on Monday if people had been out too late the night before, you could usually find people sleeping on the corks during lunch hour. Oh, that's good for the wine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially if they haven't bathed in a few days. <laughs> I should have opened it up, actually. I've got the replacement bottle, and I've got the replacement bottle sitting here, and I haven't opened it up yet. You know what? You know what I'm going to do? Peter, I'm going to open that bottle up when we go to a commercial break, Good. you know, because it will be a great demonstration of whether or not TCA is just an isolated incident, which most of the time it seems to be or whether it can be prolific throughout an entire batch of wine. What generally do you think is the case? Well, certainly in the course of 30,000 samples every year, we have found some really high numbers, but occasionally I see much, much higher numbers than that. And the way I guess we describe them is we can detect one part per trillion, and that's uh, basically our base number. We get nervous and start rejecting corks when we see scores of 1.5 trillion, and occasionally you'll see a result as high as 50, which is way past any human threshold. Trust me, I got one of those bottles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But usually when I see see something that bad in a wine, and I have seen wine that had hundreds of parts per trillion, there's usually something else going on, and I'm not sure what it is, and from my position from with the Core Quality Council, I don't really get into it, but I think there's usually some kind of contamination going on, because that's an awful lot of TCA to get out of one cork. Yeah. All right, let's change subjects here for a minute. And I am. I'm going to open that bottle up when we go to break, but let's talk about cork in general. A lot of misconceptions about cork, that there are forests that are being destroyed, that it's environmentally harmful, that we should be using screw caps because we're saving animals and resources and what have you. It's recyclable. What is the truth? Well, there's a lot of different stories out there. From my standpoint, I'm happy to report that there's plenty of cork the cork forest is large. It's expanding in some areas. It's probably not expanding as much as people would like in others, but it's very important environmentally to the Mediterranean region, not just because it's an important habitat for different plants and animals, but it's also basically the number one protection from having that entire region turn into a desert. And it protects against wind erosion and water erosion, and the United Nations has designated it one of the most important habitats in Europe, and the UN's very interested in supporting the cork industry, mostly from you know, and it's not because they're wine lovers, it's because they find it to be a very important environment and it's a protection for the area. Yeah, and then what's interesting is when we plant anything here, well, really, when you plant anything anywhere, we're used to you plant something and you get a crop every year and repeat that cycle over and over again. The production cycle for cork is vastly different than anything else out there. Can you kind of speak to that for a moment? Yeah, I don't think you'll find a whole lot of bankers who will loan you money on it because it takes basically 40 years before the tree is ready to give you a crop of cork that is suitable for making stoppers. And in most places, after you peel the cork off at one time, you have to wait at least nine years before you can do it again. <laughs> You've got to be patient. <laughs> yes. You've got to be patient and in good health, or you have to... You know, think in a more European way where, you know, you plan on the family being involved and you know that this is a long-term thing. And, and I guess in most cases, the people who are producing cork probably come from a long line of cork producers, wouldn't they? They do. And the saying in Portugal is basically you plant cork trees for your grandchildren. And um, that's probably true. 
A lot of the trees, though, are kind of indigenous. I mean, it is a uh, very common tree in the area, so it's not that there's so much planted like orchards. A lot of these trees just are there. I mean, that's um, it's like uh, in California here, we've got the California oak, and they are somewhat similar in looks to the uh, cork oak, but the cork oak has got an indigenous foothold there, which makes it a lot easier for people to commercialize it. Yeah, I hope that wasn't lost on anybody listening. The cork tree is an oak tree. And so when you look at it, it looks very much like the oak trees that we would be used to here in the States. Yes. Uh, I mean, it doesn't look like some of the eastern oak trees. I mean, it doesn't look like a pin oak, or, but it looks a lot like the California oak. They can get rather large. Most of them are, I'd say, medium size. There are some trees, you know, that are hundreds of years old that uh, are you know, would give any oak tree a run for their money. And uh, there's some that are pretty uh, outstanding. But most of these trees grow to be older than 200 years. But the soil's rather dry, and uh, it's not the richest soil in the world. So these trees are not huge, but they're several feet around in circumference at the trunk. Wow, very interesting. Now, there are some trees out there I've heard of that have been going on for hundreds of years. How many of those are there that are, you know, sort of the legendary trees that, you know, that you bow before because they're so productive and so famous? I know they exist, right? Well, I've only seen one myself, and uh, they call that the Whistler tree. The Whistler tree with all the birds, right? Yeah, and I wish I had measured it, but it is uh, certainly you can't put your arms around it. You can probably not even put your arms halfway around it. It's a big tree. It's massive, and they get a huge crop out of that. And I think it's becoming a somewhat of a media event, the one that's up for harvest. And I should know, but I don't know when it's up for harvest again. But it's every nine years but, but I, uh, but the I tree will, is harvested. But I will tell you this. This tree, the amazing thing, they call it the Whistler tree because it's full of all these birds whistling. Go visit it if you get a chance. But wear a hat. You want to wear a hat, okay? That's the only thing. <laughs> it, it rains under the tree. Let's just say that. <laughs> All right, let's jump into. Uh, well, actually, we got to take another break. I hate to do it, but uh, we're going to come back and wrap it up. But let's get down to the real nitty gritty, the most important part of the discussion, which is cork versus the Stelvin enclosure or the screw cap, as we call it and some other things like the synthetic cork. Gosh, do I hate those things. You know what? I would collect screw caps before I would buy wines with synthetic corks. That's just my opinion. But anyway, we're talking to Peter Weber, Executive Director of the Cork Quality Council. We'll see if uh, his opinions mirror mine. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but we'll find out in just a second on Grape Encounters Radio. Remember, as much as you may love wine, it is not the answer to your problems. Unless the problem is you're out of wine. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue right after these important messages. You don't have a problem with that, do you? Welcome back to Grape Encounters, where we like to think of every wine country as home. However, our studios are located in the very friendly town of Atascadero, California, 
where fine wine can be found in every direction, which means you never really need directions to get anywhere you really want to go. Man, time flies when you're having fun, and I love a good intellectual discussion. I think this is what it is with people like Peter Weber. He is the executive director of the Cork Quality Council. Peter, you know, I think it was probably six or seven years back. I remember we were doing some stories about consumer perception between the screw cap and the cork. And what surprised me about those studies was that the general public is not nearly as, I think, concerned about enclosures as those of us who are immersed night and day in the wine industry. Would you say that's true? Well, I think it might be. It probably is true. I've looked at some consumers research study just recently, which showed that 67% of the people, I think that's the right number, I wish I had it written in front of me, who drank wines over $15 thought the closure was very important, and they overwhelmingly did prefer cork. But that would kind of explain what we see in the Nielsen numbers, which is that sales over $15 are almost entirely wines with cork. Yeah. So what about you, Peter? Are you a person that is adverse to a screw cap? I know you work in the cork industry. Do you drink wines with screw cap enclosures, or just out of principle, do you avoid them? Well, uh out of principle, I do prefer to have cork wines. There are occasions where I would have to be rude to avoid the wines any further. I do have a sister-in-law who's very fond of a certain brand of screw cap wines that I have injured myself trying to take them off. They're always stuck, and we have a little joke that we keep a pair of pliers in our drawer that we usually have the cork screws in, in case that she's over with her screw cap wines because they need a mechanical advantage. Yeah, they do. They um, just kind of spin around, don't they? Anyway, I'm making a little noise here, Peter, because I'm opening up this bottle of wine. I'm not faking this. This is not a sound effect. Okay, I, I was talking about this wine, which came to me from the Middle East, and it is a 2013. I really don't want to say anything about who made the wine just yet, because I want to just check and see what it tastes like. Anyway, let's see. Here we go. So I'm pulling the cork. Oh, guess what? The cork broke in half. Does that tell me anything, Peter? No, it, not necessarily. It tells me that the uh, it's very dry. wine might have been sitting neck up on this voyage from the Middle East. Yeah, okay. Got it. We're out. Okay, I'm smelling it. I'm worried, actually, because I could be sick for hours. All right, just bear with me. I'm going to take a little quick swig of this, okay? Oh, boy. So it's a weird wine. I'm going to say that. But the TCA, I'm going to say that this is tainted as well but not nearly as bad as the other one. But this wine is definitely tainted. That's sad news, you know, because here's a company that's promoting this wine, and they're obviously sending it to wine journalists like myself, and they're promoting this wine, which I think was probably a pretty beautiful wine, but uh, no, it's not drinkable. I don't know what to do with it. What do I do with it now? There's nothing to do with it. <laughs> All right, we don't have much time left, Peter, but let's get into what was supposed to be the happy medium of enclosures, the synthetic cork. And there's a couple of them to talk about here. There is the synthetic cork that is designed to look like a cork, but in reality, it's just some kind of a rubber polymer. And then there is the synthetic cork that is made out of pieces of cork. I presume it's probably either recycled or leftover small pieces and stuff from the manufacturing plants that make the other corks. Feelings about those and, you know, sure. are those acceptable or what do you think? 
Well, I mean, all of these now are, are acceptable. The synthetic, what I call a synthetic, is usually made out of a plastic polymer, and that's a good closure. It seems to be fairly popular with some of the large wineries that have very fast bottling lines, and they really like the fact that it's very uniform and they can get a lot of throughput. From a wine aging standpoint, generally the synthetic corks tend to let in a little bit too much oxygen, and generally after 18 months or so, you'll start seeing some aging in the wines. Do we want a little oxygen in there, though? We do want a little oxygen, a little bit, and I right? guess that's why I like cork, because cork doesn't bring in oxygen like the other closures. The other closures, like the screw caps, they let in no air at all. The winemakers weren't happy with that. Like you said, you do want a little bit of oxygen so you can keep things developing and you can avoid reductive aromas. So what they've added is a slightly permeable layer. And the problem with permeable is it never stops. So you can let in some oxygen and it might be fine for two mm. months or three months or six months. They've got all different levels of permeation and winemakers sit down and they try to dial in how much oxygen they're going to let in. But nobody really knows when the consumer is going to drink the wine. So it's pretty hard to control it. So we have literally one minute left. Now that we have come one generation basically forward from when we were really starting to see some cork issues, where are we now? Well, I think most wines taste better when they're under a cork closure. I think they've got better harmony, they've got better development, and I know that there's some wines that never see any oak at all, and people want to put them in a closure that highlights the fruitiness. I get it. But for me, most wines taste better under cork, and that's why I would propose people should use it in their wines. So why do they taste better under cork? What's the chemical, physiological reason why that's true? I think it's primarily the oxygen, and I think it's, to some extent, you know, it is a piece of oak. I have measured the uh, corks with the same measurements people use to measure barrels, and I found substantial amounts of vanilla in it and all the good extracts people want to get from their barrels. So I think there could be, to some extent, some development there as well. If we had two identical bottles of wine, okay, made by the same winemaker, exactly the same wine, one had a cork in it, one had a synthetic cork in it, and then one had a screw cap, and somebody in a blind tasting said, I like this wine, but it could use some more bottle time, more time in the bottle. That's where the cork really shines, is it not? Well, I think so. There have been a lot of tastings between screw caps and corks on some fine wines that have been aged for a decent amount of time. And people do find a difference. And there's some people prefer one, some people prefer the other. But generally, what I've always noticed is that uh, the cork-finished wine always has higher scores for uh, what, you know, development, uh, cohesiveness between the different components of the flavors. And it generally, most of the well, the winemakers I talk to, they prefer them. Of course, I probably talk to the winemakers who use cork. Um, but um, and, and sometimes the screw caps are, are often usually associated with more fruit. Yeah, makes perfectly good sense. All right. Hey, Peter, thanks for coming on. This was really fun. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, really. I know we just really scratched the surface of all the things that you do, but I think we gave people a pretty good education. You did anyway, and I couldn't thank you enough. It's an interesting topic that we kind of take for granted. Okay, well, listen, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters for this week. Hey, if you want to know more about cork and you want to get into some of the information from the Cork Quality Council, Peter, best place to send people? Well, we've got a website, www.corkqc.com. Corkqc.com. That's all you need to know. Anyway, that will do it, as I said, for Grape Encounters this week. We are going to be back here same time next week. My suggestion is, before we start the show next week, grab yourself a 
fine bottle of wine and make it a wine under cork. And the show will just be that much better. We'll see you then. This week's Grape Encounters is down to the last drop. Don't let that trouble you. We're headed down to the wine cellar in search of something remarkably special to share with you next week. Until then, we've got hundreds upon hundreds of past episodes ready to be uncorked at GrapeEncounters.com. Help yourself to anything you'd like.